Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Professor Suri Moon. Thank you for joining us, Suri. It's great to have you with us. Thanks very much for having me. Suri is a professor at the Geneva Graduate Institute, where she's co-director of the Global Health Center and a professor of practice, international relations, and political science. We've had an opportunity over the years to collaborate on a few projects, the most notable being the independent panel on the global responsibility to Ebola, which she was the director of. That was a joint Harvard-London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine effort back in, I believe it was 2016. She also has run what's known as the Knowledge Network on Innovation and Access to Medicines, which has been a very important endeavor, which many of us have benefited from the work generated by that over the years. We're here today to talk about the pandemic treaty, the negotiations over a pandemic accord in UN parlance. There's a new draft and there's negotiating round that is about to begin. So the timing is great. Suri's been watching this very closely from her perch there in Geneva. We've talked at different points. I just thought this was an opportune moment to speak with you, Suri, and get your thoughts on this. Why don't we start big picture? Where are we in this process of negotiations? What does this new draft suggest where we are? Maybe we start with that, and then we can talk about what can we anticipate will happen in this upcoming round. So let's start with the first question around where are we and what does this new draft tell us? Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, Steve, for the invitation, really. Always a pleasure to speak with you. And I'm happy that you are interested in this this um, negotiation that's happening because I think COVID has certainly not been at the top of the headlines as, as pandemics have been over the last few years. But this negotiation towards a pandemic treaty or a pandemic accord, as it's sometimes called, is extremely important, I think, for, for preventing and reducing the risk of something like COVID ever happening again. So it, it's important that we get these rules right. And the, I think it's useful to remember that the rationale for launching treaty negotiations was that whatever international rules we had in place when COVID began clearly were not good enough. They weren't good enough to um, push countries to coordinate and share information with each other. They weren't good enough to ensure that uh, vaccines or medicines would reach everybody who needed them. They weren't good enough to address the big problems with disinformation or failed political leadership that we saw. So I'm not saying a new treaty can do all of that, but uh, I think that maybe captures a scale of ambition. You know, what is it that the negotiators are trying to achieve is really a step change in the world's preparedness um, and, and readiness to respond in a more equitable way, in particular to, to future pandemics and potential pandemics to really try to prevent outbreaks from growing into pandemics. 
So we've been at this for um, a couple years now, I would say. Officially, treaty negotiations began, I would say, in, in late uh, 2021. And we have a next round of negotiations starting next week, November 6th, uh, for a week. And about two weeks ago in mid-October, there was a new draft uh, that was released that was a very um, a heavily anticipated draft. Uh, we refer to this as the negotiating text. And it's the first new draft since May. Um, that has been released. It reflects, to some extent, some of the negotiations and progress in countries kind of reaching common ground that has been hammered out over the last few months. And one of the big differences between the draft we have now and what we had back in May is that there are no longer options on the table. You have a single text, and not everybody agrees with what's in that text, but we are at least at a single text, and that text reflects what six countries uh, that are known as the Bureau have agreed could fly. However, I think when we look at some of the reactions, at least some of the reactions I've heard from countries and some of the reactions we heard at a public information session just a few days ago, there are many, many questions about some contents of the draft. So I think there's still a lot of space between countries on some of the most sensitive issues, for example, uh, around vaccines, around financing, around One Health, and we can get into those uh, as you'd like. There's still a lot of space that needs to be bridged. And uh, one of the key questions that we're all wrestling with is, is it possible to bridge those gaps in the six months we have left before we're supposed to be finalizing these negotiations? And that's um, by May of 2024. Tell us how you categorize the major issue sets. You mentioned financing, you mentioned access, equity, access, vaccine, other technologies, the R&D and private sector role, the disinformation and failed political. How do you group these issue sets and can you characterize for us, for our listeners who may not be watching this very closely, sort of where are things landing at the moment and what are the big question marks around closing a gap in these areas? Yeah, those are great questions. I think that there's lots of places where countries will be negotiating hard over extremely specific wording. Uh, and I'm not going to get into that because that I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> it would take us hours. I do see four big issues that are dominating the political discussions and indeed where we still see major divisions. So the first is One Health, a uh, question of what do countries have to do to try to take a more integrated approach to human, animal, and environmental health. The second one is uh, what we call access and benefit sharing. So what are the obligations on countries to share pathogen samples and uh, data about those samples with each other quickly? And in exchange, do they get something? Do countries that share samples and other key information quickly with the international community, do they get access to vaccines or drugs or royalties or training programs in exchange? And that package of issues is referred to as um, access and benefit sharing. The third issue is anything having to do with countermeasures, again, vaccines and drugs, and that can be intellectual property, it can be research and development, it can be technology transfer, it can be capacity building. But basically, a whole cluster of issues around countermeasures remain very, very difficult and, and, and controversial, I would say. And then the last cluster of issues, um, a simple way of looking at it is it's about financing. A slightly more complex way of looking at it is it, it's about what has been referred to as common but differentiated responsibilities. So what is it that the wealthier countries and the poorest countries are willing to give each other and commit to each other in order to make this package acceptable to everyone and a package that offers something to everyone? And that's most cleanly 
discernible in the debates around financing, but actually the, it, it extends beyond that. It extends to entire principles around technical support, uh, official development assistance, capacity building. What is it that the poorer countries um, should be obligated to do and by when is there flexibility for certain countries to meet a certain obligation later than others. So there's a whole set of issues around kind of, um, you know, the, the big distinctions between the resource rich and the resource poorer countries, I would say. Now, before this recent draft arrived just a short while ago, there was a kind of widespread perception that things were stuck, that the divisions were pretty insurmountable in a way, and that we should begin to be fairly realistic beginning to adjust expectations around what can and cannot be accomplished in the time allowed. There's been a lot of very heavy criticism of this process coming from advocates of various kinds. There's been a lot of criticism coming from industry and from some of the wealthier countries. There's been a lot of criticism that's come from some of the poorer countries. And it's been a churning. It's, it's not been something that's led people to be very optimistic. Are we at a different moment now with this draft and with the opening? Are people feeling a bit more hopeful that there's some progress? What would you say? I've heard a bit more optimism. I do think this negotiating text is a step forward from where we were a few months ago. Uh, however, I personally have major doubts as to whether we'll cross the finish line in May of 24. Partly because of the big uh, space that remains between countries on a range of key issues, and partly because of the complexity of those issues. These are not simple, easy issues where if you could just come to a political compromise, we could move forward. They are issues that require negotiators and, and governments to really develop their understanding of very complex matters to even come to a clear position on what they're willing to accept or not accept. And that's what I think will take time. So to, to be a little bit more concrete, you know, when we talk about access and benefit sharing, you know, should countries be obligated to share samples and genomic sequencing data? What should countries get in return? And this is probably... Uh, in my view, that the political crux of the agreement. And if we can get agreement on that, um, I think almost everything else can flow. You know, we, we can get agreement on other pieces. However, getting clarity in the minds of governments and negotiators on when it actually is fair to ask us to do, we as you know, those who collect samples and share them, or we as those who develop technologies or share technologies or do technology transfer, what is realistic and fair and workable? What will make a real difference in the event of a future crisis? There's not a whole lot of agreement on that. And some of that disagreement is technical. It's not purely you know, based on interests or political positioning. And so trying to get people closer together, trying to find those areas of common ground actually takes time because people have to understand what it is that we're actually negotiating over. What, what is that final text that will you know, protect the interests of my country in, in the event of a future crisis? You know, there's, there's a, a handful of those issues across the text. And I think the time that is needed to get there is going to be more than, than we have on hand. And, and, and this is where the, the issue of the parallel negotiations over the international health regulations come into play, because for big countries like the United States, with dozens of people in the delegation, dozens more in capital backing them up, it's a big challenge to coordinate across those groups. But there's no shortage of resources, I would say. Compare that to a number of countries that come with one person in the delegation 
who does not have access to even a fraction of those resources, trying to not only track what's happening in multiple negotiating arenas, but actually make up their minds to advise their governments, is this good for us or not? Do we accept this or not? Or do we need more time? And, and I think the complexity of the process is not something that can be ignored. The complexity of trying to renegotiate one set of rules, the international health regulations, and at the same time negotiate a whole new set of rules, a pandemic accord, both of which are legally binding, both of which are hugely consequential for, for governments. The complexity of that process and the heaviness of that process for the human beings who day to day you know, actually have to do this work cannot be overstated. And that's why I think we'll probably need more time and that it's better to take the time we need to get to good rules than to be so wedded to this May 2024 deadline that we end up pushing through something either that's not going to do the trick or, you know, that would be ineffective to actually prevent the kinds of catastrophes we've seen, or a set of rules that so many countries are dissatisfied with that they may not, we may not get the kind of ratification, buy-in, implementation, and compliance that we need for the rules to actually have a concrete effect. Thank you. Let me play back some impressions that I have listening to you. One is that there is progress. There's progress in terms of the agreement around the agenda set that you've outlined. In other words, we've reached a point where we know what we need to resolve, and that's been clarified, and it's entering, a, as you point out, some complicated technical discussion. But when you enter that, that's a moment of progress. Beneath that, you've had a normative shift. During COVID, post-COVID, you've had a normative shift in which these issues are given prominence, and they were not given prominence in a coherent way pre-COVID. And so we are in a different moment historically. We're in a different moment morally and ethically in terms of norms and practices. And the debate that's on top of that reflects that the ground has changed. People are perceptually in agreement that these are the things that matter terribly in trying to think about what the rules need to be to protect people in the face of future terrible threats. Absolutely. And if I can just jump in here, I would just flag that, the, that all four of the issues I raised are not addressed in the IHR. So that is a clear indication that when the IHR was being revised, you know, not that long ago, one generation ago, right, 20 years ago, all of these issues... 2005? Yeah, exactly. Between 2003 and 2005 is, is really when they were being revised. These issues around equitable access to countermeasures, uh, ABS, One Health, financing, these were not even on the table. I mean, that's why they're, they're not in the IHRs. So I think you're absolutely right. The fact that they are being given the prominence that we currently see is a reflection of normative shifts uh, that, that COVID certainly kind of accelerated, that what issues matter look very different today from 20 years ago when we talk about outbreaks and pandemics. Another thing I hear you saying is the May target deadline will need to be revised, but that's not the end of the story, and that's not necessarily defeat or failure. And I wanted you to say a bit more. Okay, so we need more time than, than we have. We're entering this next negotiating round, and the clock is ticking as against May, but if people are coming around to the view that more time is required, 
where do we need to land in May for people to feel like there has been significant progress and there's reason for optimism and confidence that the work can be completed? And what might a reasonable adjusted timeline look like? Yeah, those are uh, <laughs> those are great questions. Um, and I keep hoping to be proven wrong, by the way. I, I've certainly spoken to people more optimistic than me that it's still possible to cross that finish line in, in six months. So I really do hope I'm, I'm wrong about that. But indeed, I, I certainly would not see it as a failure if the process had to be extended and, and were extended, for example, by a year. I think that that would... Yeah, it would, it would give a lot of the smaller missions in particular some of the time and space they need to participate more meaningfully in the negotiations and feel that a final text was really something that they had influenced and, and that served their interests. And I think that's important for the broader political legitimacy of the process. What would you like to see the negotiators having in hand at the time of the World Health Assembly in May? I think the May deadline is important to try to push through progress on some of the hard issues. So I named four that I think are the toughest. You know, if we could make a breakthrough on one or two of those by next May, I think that would be tremendously helpful because then we can spend the next year cleaning up the, you know, basically reaching agreement on the rest um, and cleaning up all of the little things that, of course, take time. You know, even, even the definition of pandemics is not clear that we have the right definition of pandemics in that text. And that might seem seem like a very basic thing, but it's entirely possible we will come down to the wire um, at the final agreement of this treaty, fiddling around and refining and coming to the definition that will really satisfy everyone. And, and we're not there yet. So, I mean, it's just a sign of the kinds of questions that remain, that remain open. So we have a parallel process of negotiation on reform a strengthening of the international health regulations that's parallel to this. Say a few words. Where's that process stand? Is that going to deliver results on a quicker timeline? Does that help? Do they overly complicate things or do they make sense? I think they definitely complicate things. <laughs> they make life very difficult for everybody involved in this process, including, you know, even arms length observers like me, let alone the negotiators who have to deal with this day to day. They make life very difficult for negotiators, for, for human beings, as I like to refer to negotiators, who only have so much space to, to uh, make sense of this complexity. In some ways, the revision or the, the amendment of the IHR has been easier. Why? Because we have a pre-existing text. Uh, negotiators know that text very well. Uh, there are a clear set of proposed amendments that were put on the table, um, a, a clear process with an expert committee that analyzed those amendments. And so a number of the more technical questions, they're simpler. They're, they're, it's not as hard for negotiators to understand, okay, what is it that's being proposed? You know, What can we agree to or not agree to in a revised IHR? Uh, I think where the difficulty comes up is at the political level. And, and this is for a few reasons. So one, countries that don't get uh, what they want in the pandemic accord, I think, are unlikely to agree to changes in the IHR because the two are very much one political package deal. And so while there is a push to finish the IHR and kind of get it off the table, it's also a very important negotiating chip. And because it's an important negotiating chip, almost on, on all sides, really, it's hard for me to see a situation where a group of countries says, yeah, we'll give, you know, we, we'll agree to a bunch of concessions or, you know, we'll get and we'll give and take in the IHR. We'll try to close that off. 
and then this, the, the fight will shift to the pandemic accord. That, for me, that's very hard to see happening because they're very much integrated. And, and you see that with a number of the issues that actually show up in both taxes, that countries are trying to see, okay, if I can't get it in the accord, maybe I can get it in the IHR. If I can't get it in the IHR, maybe I can get it in the accord. Add on top of that a very important additional layer of complexity, but I think very, very important, which is that the IHR are almost automatically binding on all WHO member states unless a country opts out. And that means they are legally binding, including on the United States. It's not a treaty. It's a set of regulations. And so countries know the IHR are binding. They know that everybody is in, that it's very hard politically to to opt out. And they know that they are binding and will be binding on one of the most important and and most powerful countries in, in the international system. Contrast that with the pandemic accord, which we don't yet know what the final legal status, uh, the form of this instrument will be, which is why we use this language of accord versus treaty. But I think it's looking fairly likely it's going to be a treaty. And so this means that it's very, very difficult, well nigh impossible to get it through the U.S. Senate, and that it's very unlikely that the U.S. will ratify and be bound by the pandemic accord. It's unclear whether we'll in fact reach the end of the pandemic accords. It's unclear if we'll actually reach those compromises and get to a final text. And so for countries who want something out of this whole mega political process to sign off on one before the other is done is highly risky. If you want to make sure you get something out of this whole two, three, four year political process, then you have every incentive to say, we hold the two together we conclude the two together. And hopefully by the end, we have a clear sort of division of labor between between the two sets of rules. But politically, we do not agree on one until we agree on both. And and so that's what I think is, is creating some challenges around, let's say, finishing or revising the IHR. There are also, maybe this is the last thing I'll say about the, the intersection between the two, because it's been one of the most difficult <laughs> subjects, I think, to have clear conversations about. Um, there's actually still tremendous disagreement on what should be the scope of the IHR versus what should be the scope of the pandemic accord. Some people say, well, the IHR are actually the much broader instrument because they cover all sorts of hazards, not just pandemics or potential pandemics. And therefore, you can see the pandemic accord as being one kind of narrow, very specific instrument that deals with one situation, and the IHR covers everything else. A health emergency which, which could be caused by any, any number of threats. There are people who see it exactly the opposite. The IHR is a very narrow set of rules. It only really addresses uh, outbreaks uh, when they're relatively small. And a pandemic, we know, affects all walks of life, economies, schools, society, culture, not just the health sector. And what we just lived through with COVID was clearly far beyond what the IHR had ever been envisioned to, to address. And so between these two extremes, you know, where the IHR is the umbrella and, and the pandemic accord is the is the little spoke in the umbrella. And the opposite, right? Pandemic accord is the umbrella and IHR is that little spoke in the umbrella. You have plenty of proponents um, on both sides. So how to get from two quite different views of what each instrument should do into a coherent, agreed, rational, (laughs) functional set of two sets of rules by the way, in six months, it's just difficult on multiple levels, on a political level, on an intellectual level, on a legal level, on a very human level. And, and the IHR, um, the working group negotiating the IHR amendments did, in fact, at its last meeting, essentially agree to extend their timeline. The original plan is that they were supposed to be done by January, and now they, uh, they have given themselves a few more months. That's an extraordinary exposition of a very, very, very complicated set of things. So thank you. 
in the time that remains, I want to ask you three quick questions. The first one is your thoughts on the U.S. contribution to this. How important and valuable has that been? We know we're not going to get a treaty through the, the Senate, but that doesn't mean we don't play in earnest, in good faith, and shape outcomes and begin some form of compliance on the other side. So say a word about the U.S. role in all of this on the pandemic accord. I think the, the U.S. role is incredibly important. The U.S. has, has clearly signaled its commitment to the IHR and uh, is playing a much clearer leadership role in the IHR, but its, its role in the pandemic accord is, is also, I think, incredibly important because it is the single largest funder of global health cooperation, you know, international development assistance in health. It is uh, the single largest funder of research and development for pandemic-related countermeasures, although that's, that, that may change over time. It remains, of course, a very important political force and, and, and voice in the world. So, I mean, still the single largest funder of the World Health Organization. So it remains a very, very important player. And I think on a number of issues, the U.S. has signaled a willingness to come to the table, to listen, to talk, to negotiate. Uh, I mean, we'll see, of course, what, what any final agreement looks like. But I think that... Um, that has been appreciated by a number of parties. But at the end of the day, while I agree with your characterization that those norms still matter, those norms still matter, you know, even if the U.S. doesn't ratify, they matter outside the U.S. and they matter inside the U.S., those norms still matter, but they don't matter in the same way that binding international law would matter. And I think people haven't forgotten that. And I think it's important to remember when we were starting this whole process two years ago, there was a very clear preference expressed by the U.S. for the IHR, a very clear preference expressed by the European Union for, for a pandemic accord, and a number of countries kind of splitting themselves in between the two camps or falling in the middle. Um, and so I think because of these heavyweights, really each wanting one instrument over the other, it's why we're in this crazy two-track complex process, but it's also what I hope will push us across the finish line with both. I mean, ideally, we get two strong agreements, two strong sets of rules, um, no matter which one you think is bigger or more important. Uh, if it takes us a little longer to get there, so be it. But I think having that political commitment uh, from the U.S. on the IHR, from EU, the EU and other players on the pandemic accord is going to be important to hopefully strike what needs to be, at the end of the day, a grand compromise. Let's close by asking you to share with us what gives you the greatest hope and optimism looking forward. Embedded in that is also a question of, you know, how do we keep our expectations in check or how do we keep our expectations in a kind of realism that has to be present there? But I think you've answered this question already in some respects in the way that you've described the process and what you think is possible. But at base, what gives you the greatest hope and optimism? Oh, maybe I'll begin responding to that by turning to um, what, where we have to be realistic, uh, which is what you also flagged. And I think we have to be realistic that treaties are not supposed to solve every problem. They cannot be so detailed that they anticipate every situation. So I think we have to be realistic that a number of the challenges that we're wrestling with and a number of the problems we're trying to solve have to be solved down the line. We have to agree on the grand bargain, on the broad strokes of the agreement, and then we have to move into implementation and you know follow-up conferences and that sort of thing. And, and you, we see that with climate change, right? You need the big commitments, but then actually making a difference takes year after year after year of hard work. And I think that's absolutely the same for, for pandemics. Um, but what, what gives me hope 
uh, might be a little bit surprising. I mean, I, I would go back to what you were saying earlier. I think the norms have very much shifted. And the prominence given to the value of equity in these negotiations and the prominence, uh, the commitment to equity expressed by all countries, I think, has been incredibly um, consistent and strong. And I think what we need to do is actually get to a text that operationalizes uh, in a credible and reliable way that commitment to equity. That gives me uh, a lot of hope. But the other thing that I find um, optimistic, you know, we're, we're living in very difficult political times, geopolitically, uh, very polarizing um, and polarized times. And one of the questions I've been asking is, how much will these treaty talks be uh, affected or torn apart by these broader geopolitical rifts. And so far, knock on wood, what I have seen is that the emphasis and the focus has been very much on health and on what is recognized as a shared threat, a shared threat of future pandemics, that this really does affect every single country um, and every single person. And I think there's some hope to be taken from that, uh, that we can reach a compromise um, in a world that is otherwise, it seems to be falling apart day by day. Thank you. Thank you so much, Suri, for being with us today. And we've covered a lot of ground really fast, and it's really remarkable. And very grateful to you for all you do and for taking the time to be with us today. And we'll have to check back in sometime in the new year to see where we are. Thanks very much, Steve. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.